Chapter 12 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Chapter 12. Santa Teresa's Text. 1. The man who has fallen under the spell of Santa Teresa will carry her image in his heart for ever after. Especially will he think of her when he walks beside the sea, strolls along the river bank, or traces the tortuous windings of some upland stream. For with Teresa, the love of water was a deathless passion. In her romantic pilgrimages along the highways and byways of Spain, she would listen entranced if she heard the babble of a brook, the tumbling of a mountain torrent, or the deep murmur of a distant waterfall. She thought that earth held nothing more beautiful than the rainbow athwart the spray of a cascade. And whenever on reaching the crest of a hill she caught a glimpse of some glassy lake or noble river flashing in the sunlight, she would clap her hands in a frenzy of delight. She loved to bathe her feet in the purling waters. And when, just beside the road, a crystal spring gushed from its nest of ferns and mosses, she gathered her nuns around her, laved her hands in the delicious fountain, and seemed to draw some spiritual refreshment from the sight and sound of the sparkling rill. To the very last, this ruling passion of her life was strong within her. Withered and old, and fast nearing the goal of her desires, the windings of the river which she skirted on one of her last journeys on earth, the journey from Placencia to Soria, roused her enthusiastic admiration. So says Mrs. Cunningham Graham in her Life and Times of Santa Teresa, and later on she has another striking paragraph. For on the road to Burgos, Teresa and her nuns are balked by a river in full flood. Now then, my daughters, cries the intrepid old woman, who is sixty-seven and paralytic at that, I will cross first. If I am drowned, you must on no account attempt it. So saying, with one of her merry smiles, she plunges boldly into the cauldron of swirling waters and safely reaches the opposite bank. Water is her element. It has no terror for her. She loved it as a little child, and her affection for it remains constant to the last. With Santa Teresa, it was water, water everywhere and water all the time. It was the hearing of a story of the mystic waters that first inclined her heart toward the Savior. Her teaching is illustrated throughout by the symbolism of the stream. She seems to think in the terms of the pool and the cataract, the well and the shower, the laughing rivulet into the unfathomable ocean depths. 2. It was a great day in the life of Teresa when it first occurred to her that Jesus was as fond of the waters as she was. It was a picture that brought this home to her, and as long as she lived, she thought of the picture with peculiar fondness and gratitude. It hung in her own room in the home of her girlhood. It represented Jesus resting on the well, talking to the woman of Samaria. Oh, how often, she says in her biography, how often do I meditate on the living water of which our Lord spoke to the woman of Samaria. That story has a great attraction for me, and indeed... So it had when I was a little child, though I did not understand it then as I do now. I had in my room a picture representing Jesus at the well. Underneath it was the inscription, 
Lord, give me this water. I used to kneel down before the picture and pray much to our Lord that I, too, might drink of the wonderful water of which he was speaking. It was many years before that girlish prayer was answered. Indeed, it was many years before Teresa was ready for the answer. The living water only comes to the thirsty soul, and as yet the soul of Teresa knew no such deep and passionate desire. The thought of water fascinated her. The incident depicted in the picture seemed to her very affecting. The Savior's condescension struck her as exquisitely beautiful, and she felt in some vague way that she too would like to receive water at his hands. But that was not all. Teresa was bubbling over with life and merriment. She was essentially a child of her period, and her period was the gayest and most romantic in Spain's romantic history. She was extraordinarily beautiful, tall, well-shaped, with a fine complexion, round, brilliant black eyes, black hair, crisp and curly, good teeth and firmly chiseled lips and nose, and she quickly learned to display her charms to the best advantage. The frivolity of her girlhood afterwards troubled her. I paid a great deal of attention to dress, she tells us, and was anxious that everybody should think me pretty. She made it her business to keep her small, dainty hands most scrupulously white, and she spent a vast amount of time before her mirror in arranging her luxurious black tresses. I was fond of perfumes, she says, and of all the vanities within my reach, and they were many, but I had no evil intention in using them. Of course not. It was with a light and girlish heart that Teresa revels in the flowers and fields and forests about her father's home. It is with a light and girlish heart that she lingers on the image of her graceful form and pretty face as she admires them in the mirror. It is with a light and girlish heart that, at the age of seven, she takes her brother's hand and sets off along the dusty road to Salamanca that they may win for themselves, among the Moors, the glorious crown of martyrdom. And it is with a light and girlish heart that she kneels before the picture and repeats over and over and over again the prayer inscribed beneath it. Lord, give me this water. Lord, give me this water. I did not understand it then, she writes, half a century later. It was not with a light and girlish heart that the woman in the picture begged for the living water. It was not with a light and girlish heart that Teresa herself eventually sought that satisfying stream. 3. Not that Teresa had to surrender her natural gaiety in order to secure the Savior's grace. By no means. Without that gaiety, Teresa would not have been Teresa. She loved water because water is the natural emblem of vivacity. It ripples and splashes and foams and thunders. It is full of animation and life. Teresa herself was vivacious to the end of the chapter. The cloisters of Avila resounded with her peals of merry laughter. She laughed for the sheer joy of it when things went well, and misfortunes only appealed to her sense of the ludicrous. One bitter winter's night, when the poor nuns at Toledo could not find enough bedclothes to keep their teeth from chattering, Teresa lit her taper, went to the round of the establishments, poked fun at the capes, coats, cloths, and improvised quilts under which the girls were shivering, and soon had the whole place rocking with merriment. When Frey Juan painted her portrait and brought it to her, the portrait that still stands as the frontispiece of her writing and biographies, she broke into immoderate laughter. 
How could she, who had always been so proud of her own loveliness, recognize herself in the blear-eyed and hard-featured old woman whose grim and heavy visage stared sternly at her from the canvas? Believing, as she said, that God likes to walk among the pots and pipkins, she became a most accomplished cook. But when a meal was spoiled through some poor sister's blunder in the kitchen, she turned it into a jest at table, and the incident passed in a ripple of silvery mirth. During the fifteen years of her pilgrimages along the great Andalusian highroads, she kept her companions in so blithe a mood that they found it easy to forget their weariness. She cultivated a sharp eye for the whimsical side of every object that they passed. She enlivened every step of the way with clever puns and haunting couplets, for Teresa was a born wit. The most eminent critics agree that the humor of Cervantes is neither more delicious nor more dainty than that of Teresa. She discountenanced all murmurs and complaints and was never once heard to say an unkind word of anybody. She dearly loved a game. One of her most telling illustrations is drawn from her experiences at chess. Into her convents she introduced musical instruments, the pipe, the flute, the drum, the cymbals, and the tambourine, and trained her nuns to join her in glees and lively melodies. She liked the place to resound with evidence of their mutual happiness. She could never pass a little child on the road without running to kiss it. She shouted for joy when she caught sight of a brightly colored butterfly. She liked her nuns to look pretty, and she had nicknames and pet names for them all. She did all that she possibly could to keep them blithe. No words, says one of her biographers, can give an idea of the glad cheerfulness, the holy joy, the serene composure which reigned in that little world, as it still reigns today in many of Therese's convents. Melancholy in the cloister? God forbid! Therese dreaded the melancholy as the plague. A person infected with it was to be refused admittance to her convents. Teresa liked nuns of clear and serene understanding and unclouded brows. It never once occurred to Teresa that she was called upon to make a choice between her laughter on the one hand and everlasting life on the other. It would be dreadful, she writes, if we could not seek the Savior until we were dead to this world. Neither the Magdalene nor the woman of Samaria nor she of Canaan were dead to it when they found him. The woman of Samaria. Teresa's thoughts never wander far from the picture that hung in the old bedroom at home. No, the woman of Samaria had not lost her love of life. Was it not living water for which she asked? Wherein, then, lay the difference between the prayer of the little Spanish girl in front of the picture and the prayer of the Samaritan woman in the picture? Wherein lay the difference between the oft-repeated prayer offered by Teresa as a child? Give me this water! Give me this water! and the same prayer offered years afterward by the very self-same lips. 4. The angel who records earth's requests and heaven's responses would probably tell us that Teresa's later prayer was itself the answer to Teresa's earlier cry. When, as a little girl, Teresa kneeled before the picture, she was not thirsty. She was animated, partly by a child's propensity to imitate its senior, and partly by the irresistible fascination that water— a well of water, living water, always had for her. Heaven does not moisten the lips that are not thirsty, but the girlish cry is registered, and when the thirst comes, the living water is immediately ministered. 
The time came when poor Teresa was not only thirsty, but terribly and tragically thirsty. In attempting to describe her sensations, the only symbolism of which she can think is the symbolism of the parched and burning desert. Oh, my aridity, she cries, my great and intolerable aridity. She is a nun, it is true, but she will not be a hypocrite. She abandons prayer as hopeless. How can she pray with her lips when there is no glad and grateful worship welling up from her soul? Oh, my God, she cries, I am amazed at the hardness of my wicked heart. Yet, just as the silence of the desert is itself one great cry for water, so the silence of Teresa's soul is but a magnified, intensified echo of her girlish cry. Water, water, living water! Lord, give me this water, give me this water! And that passionate cry was heard. During the years that followed, she wrote a treatise on the spiritual life, a treatise that still stands among our choicest religious classics. But from the first page to the last, the imagery is colored by the unforgettable experience of that dreadful period. She likens the soul to a garden in which grains and vegetables, beautiful flowers and sweet-smelling herbs should flourish. But it is parched and dry. How is the owner to make it fresh and fruitful? There are four ways, she says, and she pictures him laboriously drawing water from a well, become exhausted long before the whole garden has been moistened. Again, she pictures him toiling at a water wheel with scarcely more success. And a third time, she pictures him carrying water to his garden from a neighboring stream. Then having with a skillful hand drawn the spiritual analogies in each case, she proceeds to the fourth source of refreshment, the rain, the water that falls from heaven, the life that comes to the garden from above. But for it, the well will soon be empty. The water wheel will revolve in vain, and the bed of the stream will be dry. Everything depends upon the water that must be divinely given. And with the old picture in mind, she tells the story of one who sat by Jacob's well, one to whom the woman of Samaria and she herself had cried, Lord, give me this water, give me this water. 5. But in Teresa's mind, there was a yet deeper resemblance between the woman at the well and herself. The outstanding factor in the New Testament story, the thing that the Samaritan woman herself could never forget, was that Jesus revealed to her her sin and forgave it. In exactly the same way, the outstanding factor in the life of Teresa, the thing that she could never forget, was that Jesus had revealed to her her sin and forgiven it. Others call her St. Teresa. She signs herself Teresa the Sinner. As her nuns knelt around her deathbed, she magnified the grace that had dealt so wonderfully with her. My children, she exclaimed, I have been the greatest sinner in the world. And she meant it. She had not sinned as the woman of Samaria had sinned. Teresa was the soul of purity. Her love of water was the expression of her passions for all things clean and cleansing. But for all that, she was conscious that her soul was soiled. To others, she may have seemed a paragon of virtue, but as Francis de Sales observed, the defects that are scarcely perceptible to the ordinary run of mortals appear to those who are striving after perfection as the most grave and heinous transgressions. My wickedness, cries Teresa, appears to me so enormous 
that I look upon my sins as the cause of all the heresy and misery that have come upon the world. She had a vision of hell, and she saw her own place in it. The vision was, she says, one of the greatest mercies that God ever bestowed upon her. For whenever afterwards trials and sufferings came upon her, she contrasted their painfulness with the unutterable horror of her vision. And even as she gazed upon her place in that abode of torment, she could not help feeling that it was pleasant as compared with the still more dreadful doom that her iniquities deserved. Her sins were her sorrow day and night. The remembrance of them was grievous unto her. The burden of them was intolerable. She lost her burden where the woman of Samaria lost hers, in the presence of the Savior. There came to her, after twenty years of convent life, an overwhelming vision of the pathos and power of the cross. Under such circumstances, as Froude remarks, Protestants and Catholics experienced an identical emotion. Each poor sinner recognizes as by a flash of lightning that these tortures were endured for him or her, that he or she was actually present in the Savior's mind when he was suffering on the cross. The thought, when it comes, is overpowering. Teresa was dissolved in tears. She surrendered herself wholly and forever to the being whose form was fastened on her soul. Her spiritual life had begun. So Froude tells the story of her conversion. Her own narrative is much more affecting, but it is lengthy. She has seen, so she tells her confessor, the Christ, the living Christ. The sweetness, light, and peace that poured themselves into her soul are indescribable. Henceforth she can only sing for very gladness. She sings as they alone only can sing to whom much has been forgiven. Teresa has an immense correspondence, but from that time she seals all her communications with a seal that contains five matchless letters, the letters J-E-S-U-S. -S. 6. The woman of Samaria left the well and went back to the world to make history. The whole city was changed as a result of her conversion. So was it with Teresa. She dedicated her transfigured life to the purification and reformation of the religious establishments of Spain, and her work was so wonderful that when she died, she was made the patron saint of her grateful country. When the time of her departure came, her death was as lovely as her life. She gathered about her the nuns who were as dear to her as her daughters. She repeated with them the greatest of our penitential psalms, just as a psalm as in dying the woman of Samaria might have recited. Create in me a clean heart, O God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart thou wilt not despise. She clung to the words, uttering them again and again, then... Oh, my Lord, she exclaimed, the hour that I have so much longed for has come at last. The time has surely come that we shall see one another. And with a gentle sigh, she set out to use her own words, not to a strange country, but to her native land, which it was the land to which he dwelt, whom she so loved and who so loved her. End of chapter 12